You're listening to another episode of The Zag. Erica Sob here. Excited to be joined by 2014 fellow Tamika Butler is here. She's run Institute. She's been on our board. And she's probably the most requested for Zag guest of all time. So excited to finally have her on about 250 episodes in. Let's not waste any more time. Let's get to it. All right, Tamika, have you found the right way to start emails in these pandemic times? How do you usually start off a correspondence with somebody these days? Oh my gosh, working from home with kids is a total joke. That's that's usually <laughs> how I start every email. It's not, hope things are well, hope you're hanging in there. There's no nod to maybe things are normal. You're just like, yeah, it's all crazy. I usually end by saying something like, say safe and sane. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I save it for the end. Also, honestly, I'm probably just worse at email right now, which I know you hearing that might (laughs) might surprise you since I'm always bad at email, as you know. Um, But 250 episodes in just felt like the right time. I just want to make sure it was going to last. Right, right. Wanted to see if you had staying power. (laughs) What's been the most surprising thing about about parenting in these quarantine times? Um, You know what's really interesting about parenting during this time is I find myself when I'm most frustrated saying like, oh, why would anybody become a parent? Parenting is horrible. Like, <laughs> I love my kid, but, and I took I took one day off of work, well, one afternoon only off of work since all of this has started, and I just like literally unplugged and just hung out with the Tay, and what I realized is it's not him. It's this this notion that during a pandemic, like, everything should keep going, right? And not necessarily that that's the pressure my job is putting on me, but the pressure we're putting on ourselves um, to just like keep performing, keep churning out, stay productive, stay a valuable employee. And that's actually what sucks, not my kid. Hmm, That's interesting. And your kid, I'm sure, agreed and enjoyed hanging out with you and having that time. Have you all developed any different or new routines since your home work? Um he doesn't get dressed in the morning as quick as he used to (laughs) everything's a little dirtier uh but i think it's i think what's been really cool he's gonna turn two in july um and so like just you get to see the growth and you get to see the new Mm. words every day and it's just been really really cool yeah i was gonna ask you about fashion before we jump into some of the the professional topics because yeah you're known for sharp suits bow ties pocket squares and i feel like i've seen a few zoom screenshots of you in like hawaiian outfits and super super casual what's your what's your approach to fashion these days um anything that fits <laughs> my approach to fashion i you know i've always admired your your fitness mm. and i think that the thing that's been hardest for me is that like i eat my feelings and so really my fashion since those hawaiian shirts don't have to be buttoned they can be worn open and so that's really where it's at yeah when folks ask you what you do for a living how do you usually answer that question these days um, it depends if if I'm like, if I'm, it, I laugh only because like, literally, like if, you know, I'm a black person looking for an apartment or, <laughs> uh, or being asked what I'm doing in a store, like I'm a lawyer, um, really at inappropriate times, right? Like, like shopping in a store and someone just wants to help me, but I'm so used to being accosted. Um, instead of saying like, I'm looking for shoes, I'm like, I'm a lawyer. Um, <laughs> but most of the times when I'm feeling more comfortable, I say that I, um, I'm a transportation planner. And so transportation is top of mind for some folks, not all folks, but one of the things I've been working on a lot here in Delray is 
trying to get uh, what's called slow streets. And people might have seen these projects or initiatives across the country. It's been pretty big news from Oakland and San Francisco, a little bit in New York and other parts of the world too, where you design through, say, A-frames or signage, uh, ways for uh, non-local traffic to be kept off streets so that you can open up public spaces and pavement for folks to move around uh, in these quarantine times and social distancing times. And so we've been trying to get that off the ground here in, in Delray and finally did last Friday and had the usual sort of pushback from community, but also a lot of support. And I know you're in this world a lot more than I've I've been. Maybe just first off, what's your reaction to the slow street movement in general across the country? Like many things in transportation, and part of the reason I do this job is because I genuinely love it. And so I I love I love slow streets and I, I love that there is this opportunity, you know, something that I think all of us go through no matter what profession we have when there are emergencies like this. And we're not doctors or nurses, our grocery store workers, folks who are directly on the front line. We we have these moments of like how can I contribute and how can I be most helpful? And what am I what am I doing to to really, really help, right? And so I think part of why Slow Streets has has been so popular is because it, it, it's helping people and it's people who want to help. But I also see the nuance in that. I, I also, just as a you know a Black queer person in this country who has a very different experience of public space and being policed in that space, and not just necessarily by police, but by my neighbors, by you know people who are supposed to be in community with me, I also see the ways that, that it can be difficult. And so I've been really excited uh, about slow streets, but I've also been really dismayed um, by the way that folks in power, particularly white folks, have been so dismissive of people of color who have raised any concerns or, or any pushback, which I think is very different than people being like, I want to still be able to speed down the street, you're stopping my car. <laughs> and I think the fact that some of the critique is all getting grouped together instead of being um, being really analyzed with nuance and thoughtfully has been really disappointing, but frankly is kind of a, a failure of, of the way our systems often work. So one of the things I'm worried about, because the mayor didn't do a more citywide action himself or, or with DOT or even with the council's office directly, it's you know been made so hyper-local that you know after Delray and the Sawtell West LA area launched last Friday, uh, the mayor opened up an application system for essentially any of the neighborhoods or communities in LA. And there was quickly like 120 of them came in. And, and, and to me, that's just, it's so hyper-local and, and makes 120 different complicated factors, uh, puts 120 different factors in play for people to make complicated, I should say. Uh, it just kind of makes my, my head spin. Would you, would you say that was kind of the right approach to go hyper-local and potentially give communities a chance to have a voice? Or do you, just actually make it so so much in the minutia that, that it just ends up being a giant mess and, and the people who typically get shut out of these things will still get shut out. It's tough, right? Because I I think the the unsatisfying answer is slow streets, like anything, would be really easy if the solution was here's how you should do it and here's the way to do it to benefit the most people and to be the most equitable and to be the safest. Like here's how you should do something. And the reality is is that like Oakland is going to make a different decision than Los Angeles is going to make a different decision than New York is going to make a different decision than Atlanta, right? Um, and then in some of those cities like Atlanta or Chicago, you're going to have advocacy groups um, that, you know, like the Atlanta Bike Coalition, um, 
that are still going to come out against it. And so I, you know, the answer to your question is the right solution and the right way to do it is going to be really dependent from community to community. And then even with, within each community, you're, you're going to see that like maybe, and I think this is what you're saying, like maybe like the neighborhood council um, framework works for Delray, but maybe it doesn't work in, in communities that don't have as robust um, and as strong as, as a neighborhood council um, led by great folks like Eric DeSoeb, who are like engaged and connected, right? Um, but I also think that the, the flip side of that um, is that I know that LADOT was super thoughtful about this. I, I know that they had, you know, conversations and really wanted to make sure that they weren't creating a system where they were just imposing something on folks that that might not have been top of mind, right? And so you can you can slow down the streets, but if folks still can't get food, if folks um, still feel like they can't be out, then are you really doing what's their most pressing need? And so. Is it the perfect solution? I think folks can go back and forth on that. Is it too hyper-localized? Folks can go back and forth on that. But I think the intent of of trying to make sure that that folks can determine what it is they need um, in this moment and to try to listen to folks um, about what they need in this moment is really, really important. Um, and, and so that, that's what I see from it. Now it's brand new, right? And so mm-hmm. ask me, in in two months, um, I mean the way time travels these days. Ask me in two weeks; it'll feel like two months, and I might have a totally different opinion. And I think that will really depend. And in Oakland, they're they are collecting data. They're like you know take putting out surveys and all of these things, and then they have a dashboard that they're showing online where they're able to show who's actually. Um, who's actually participating, who's giving us feedback, who are we not hearing from. And so I think that's the kind of information that's really important. It's not just that you did the thing, it's how are you evaluating the thing and how are you allowing yourself to correct if like, again, in two weeks, we're all like, oh, this was a horrible idea. Um, Are we going to be open to having that conversation and, and moving forward? And I hope so. When we come back with Tamika, we'll talk a little bit more about streets and transportation and life in LA. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Zag. We'll be right back. Tamika, I'm glad you mentioned Oakland. In your transportation advocacy world, is there a city, either in the States or globally, that you look to as the model of not only how to make the infrastructure work, but also how to make the process work? That's a good question. I think people always want the city when it particularly comes to to equity. So to just, you know, centering the voices of, of low income folks and folks of color. Um, I, I think if there was a city that was doing it well, we would all know about it. I think there are cities that are trying really hard and and, and starting to get it right. Um, and starting to be more open to more voices. And I would put LA on that list. I'd put Oakland on that list. I'd put Seattle on that list. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm on the West Coast, so perhaps I'm a little West Coast centric. And then I think when you say city, like, is it just the government officials? I think in a lot of cities um, in Chicago, in New Orleans, in, um, in Atlanta, I think you have a lot of folks um, who might not be city employees, but I think the advocacy communities, which have historically been white, are, are actually doing a better job of understanding the full spectrum of issues. Internationally, 
Um, I think especially right now, you know, a lot of folks have been looking at the UK. A lot of folks have been looking at France. Um, a lot of folks have been looking at these places. Um, Toronto has, has done some things mm -hmm. where they're just taking over streets. And so I definitely think there's lessons learned. I think what's always hard in transportation, and this was the case when Vision Zero um, first came on the scene here in the United States, is that sometimes we're adopting these frameworks um, from European countries that... Um, don't have the same history of 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 race that we have now there there's white supremacy and colonialism everywhere <laughs> but don't have kind of, kind of the same rooted histories in, in slavery and policing and so that sometimes makes it hard to translate some of these these frameworks that might work other places hey last thing one of the concepts i've been thinking a lot about of in these quarantine pandemic times is how you build community amongst people virtually for training sessions. So you think about the years that you ran NLC Institute, if you'd had to do that over Zoom as opposed to in the room uh, Saturday and Sunday for six months, if you got charged with that challenge again, if we made you run Institute in 21, how would you even think about intellectually putting together an experience where people had that tight bond uh, by the end of the program? First, I would intellectually like and emotionally try to prepare my wife uh, for the <laughs> amount of uh, the amount of time it would take. But, you, but um, you'd be home the whole time. That you would I, have I would be home, <laughs> right? Uh, but she wouldn't get to see me in my nice suits all the time. That's true, um, true. It's it was such it was such an important experience, and you know you're one of my best friends, and that's because of of NLC. You're one of the people who I don't have to talk to every day, but I know I could pick up the phone and you'd be there. And part of that was because of all the time we spent together yeah. in a room, right? And so I think this is something really, really tough. And I think it's tough whether or not you're thinking about summer camp, whether or not you're thinking about kids who don't get to be in school um, or getting to be in the office with your colleagues or doing a community outreach event or professional development training. And I, I, I just, I, it would be, it would be hard. Um, and it would both be hard, but it's something that we would have to adapt to. Because now more than ever, social connections and connecting with people is really important. But I also think we just have to be aware that like Zoom is draining in a different way, right? Like who thought we'd all be yearning for the old fashioned phone calls <laughs> um, where you could actually go outside and walk, right? And so I think, I think we'd have to be creative about how you use meetups, how you use technology, how you don't use technology and something that you, me, and Marisa were always a big part of with NLC. It's just the diversity of the folks we brought in. And so I think something that I just really fear we're not talking about enough is the digital divide. You can't just say, like, it's okay, Zoom will fix it. We can just do everything virtually because everyone doesn't have access to those same reliable um, Wi-Fi systems. Um, and and also everyone doesn't feel safe at home, right? We don't, we don't know... Um, for whom some of those fellows um, being able to get out of the house for a whole weekend was actually their safest place. Um, and so I think those are the pieces that I, I, I'm really hoping, you know, some people say like, this is great. We can go to this sort of technology all the time. I think we have to be creative and I think we have to be innovative about how we mix online technology and in-person social distance gatherings and, and how we find community with one another, but make sure to not make it the, the go-to norm that stays permanent because human connection is still super, super important. And I feel like this is, this is true. And this will be the last thing we, we chat about that you've been a little more vocal on social media these days, posting more 
uh, things that you're writing and also amplifying other voices. What's your social media strategy these days? I need a I need a strategy. I need a publicist. Uh, so if anybody, else, if anybody out there wants to help me be a publicist, I mean, honestly, I've been super inspired by you, Eric, and just your commitment to this podcast. And I think that's one of the best strategies, right? Just consistency um, and, and just committing the time and space to do the thing. I think the other thing that's happened for me is less about like a strategy around social media and more about a, a self, self-care um, and self-worth and self-value. I think for so long, I've I've wanted to make sure that I don't say anything um, that's going to impact a job or going to impact this or impact that. And I think I finally just got to the place where I realized that I, I have things to say and I'm not going to shrink who I am to make other people feel better. Um, and I think it's been because I have people like you who support me but like honestly that's been the hesitation with doing the podcast that I I didn't want to offend anyone I didn't want to get in trouble and I think it's just um the biggest strategy for me is trying to do a better job of surrounding myself with people who help me shine rather than try to dim my light and that's I think the most important strategy well said. Well, thanks for coming on. I look forward to seeing you 250 episodes into the future. Episode <laughs> I'll be 500. Back. I'll be back. <laughs> to Butler. And thanks everyone for listening to this episode of The Zag. You can catch all the ep- episodes that Tamika wasn't on and all the places that you get your podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, they're all there. Check them out. And until next time, we'll catch you soon.